0: Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Thank you, Seti, so much, and I want to uh, thank you for being uh, with us here today. My name is Arnaldo. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm the pastor here. And a special thanks to uh, uh, to Isaac Viglioni and to Sam and to Jacob for putting that together for us. That was actually the first time that I've seen it um, with other people, uh, and it, it hit different. It hit different when you're actually sharing that, and kind of made me realize that there's still processing for a lot of us to to process over what's sort of happened, uh, that has happened to us. Um, One of the things that has been so clear to me has been that it's revealed to us the ways in which that we think we're in control, uh, but really we're not. And so what it's done to us, the gift of the last couple years, one of them has been uh, the shedding of the illusion that we're actually in control. Um, and it just brought me to tears to, to be here with, with y'all uh, still, right? And so uh, I'm just really grateful uh, for you. Um, as that is mentioned, we are continuing along in our series uh, in, uh, and through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's titled Vanitas. And Vanitas, like Sadi mentioned, is uh, the, the Latin word for, uh, for meaninglessness or, or vanity that we read. It's the Hebrew word havel. It, it occurs about 38 times in the book. And what this book is showing us, what Ecclesiastes is showing us, is that any attempt to create or to discover uh, meaning under the sun is havel. It's meaningless. It's vain. And so really, uh, we are starting with the conclusion right from the start, right? We're not waiting in suspense as to what this book is going to be teaching us. It's telling us right from the start that any way that we try to create or manufacture meaning under the sun is meaningless. And that's a hard pill to swallow. In fact, it's so hard that when we... uh, uh, go through our child dedication, we're going to switch it up. We're not going to go through uh, Vanitas in a couple weeks. I feel that we're going to do something a little bit more upbeat, like Jesus loving the children and allowing them to come, right? Because that wouldn't serve us well on that week. And quite frankly, it is a very depressing book but one that in the light of Christ has the potential to actually form us in the way of Christ. And so far what we've seen is this guy called Kohelet, uh, the preacher, it's a title. Uh, He's the main actor and the speaker in the book and he's trying to achieve uh, life, like he's trying to achieve the good life. Through wisdom, or uh, through wine, or through music, or through art, or through women, or architecture, or gardening, or amassing this incredible, incredible fortune. And yet, through all these things, and in all these things, he comes over and over again to this refrain, that it is meaningless, it is vanity, it is chasing after the wind. And I don't know if you've done that before, and I know this joke is going to get old after nine weeks of saying it, but go ahead tomorrow and try to catch wind and see what you get. And that's the idea that he is getting after in this book. And today, we're going to be looking at the most well-known and oft-quoted part of the book, that poem, 3, verse 1 to 8. And as he throws up his hands... This feels like if this could be the end of the book because he throws up his hands in this resignation of trying to find meaning, and yet it is eluding him. And so we're going to be looking at the vanity of searching. But before we do that, help me to pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, you have given us enough health and enough energy, uh, Lord, to be here today, and we just want to thank you uh, for the breath in our lungs, for uh, our abilities to think and hear and, and uh, just be present to one another today in fellowship. And we just ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would draw near to us, that we would, in fact, leave as changed people. Would you help me, Lord, to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people that I've prepared and help me to remember the things that will be. And we pray more than anything, Lord, that the the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, now, if you were living through the 20th century, and I, I realized when I was watching this, there are some people in this room, that have not lived through the 20th century. Those are the 1900s, by the way. Uh, and it, it struck me, like, dead in my tracks while I was riding. I'm like, there are some people who, who like, I have to, we have to teach them about what happened in the last century because they, they weren't born yet. It's, it's wild. But if you did live through the 20th century, uh, in the West particularly, I'm thinking about Europe or Australia, America. It was a wild century to live through and in, right? Two world wars, a global pandemic, an economic depression, sexual and cultural and medical revolutions. It was a time of major, major, major shifts, and as we find ourselves in the 21st century living through equally tumultuous times, except I feel it's a, it's a little worse for us because the, the rate of change has gone 10,000-fold faster, right? Like, it's, it's amazing the rate of change that we experience in our lives today. But it was a time of major, major shifts where even now uh, we live in a world that was created by those shifts, a world where we don't know uh, which way is up. I understand that living today can be psychologically taxing. It is not easy to live in today's Western world. And if we're going to live as faithful disciples and as citizens, not only of Sydney, but of the heavenly city, I want us to understand where it is, in fact, that we find our meaning and purpose in life. And back, you know, out of 50, 75 years ago, there there was a cultural shift where we went from finding our meaning and our purpose in a kind of life at home sort of culture where you were what your father was, what your parents were. There was no thinking, there was no going out to eat and pray and love uh, about what you were gonna do with your life. There was no excursion three months through Europe to kind of find yourself. You knew because of your last name. So if your father was a potmaker, you were a potmaker. If your parents were farmers. You were a farmer, but we've shifted from having that kind of life to having a life that is not marked by the home, but a life that is marked by the road. And a culture that is marked uh, by a life at home is, uh, it values stability. It values answers. It values risk management, security. It was the boom of the insurance, like, age, like the the whole insurance scheme of, you have to insure your stuff, you have to make sure that you manage all of your risk. Whereas a culture marked by life on the road is a culture that values the journey over the destination. It values questions over answers, risk over safety, the new over the old, adventure over the mundane. The culture of life on the road is a culture that realized this very important thing, that meaning is not found by accumulating things at home, by shoring up yourself at home. It's a mindset that teaches us that the destination, and I've said this before, the destination doesn't so much matter, it's the journey that matters. It's a culture of resignation. It's a culture of searching. It's a mindset that teaches us that because we cannot find our final meeting in our destination, then we must find it on the way there. And really, in the end, we're left with two choices in this culture of searching. We're left with two choices, and, and the first is rough, and it's, it's, it's suicide, right? And I'm just keeping it real with you. I'm keeping it 100. Like, if there is nothing, if there's no way that we can find purpose and meaning then that that is a logical conclusion for us. The second one is that we look for meaning elsewhere, and so consequently, with Kohelet, one of the places where we look for meaning is on the road. It's not necessarily where you're going, but the process of where you are going, the process of searching. It's all about the journey now. I love the way that Mark Sayers points this out for us. He says this, that we like the idea of the road because it enables us to remain emotionally adolescent. That, that stings. I'm a millennial. We are living in a perpetual adolescence, one that keeps us on the road, wandering individuals cut off from the tribe. Behind us is home with the comforts of the familiar and a childlike sense of security. Yet, yet, we also want to leave home because of the restraints of parental authority. Ahead over the horizon is the potential of adulthood. The possibility of a mature life is appealing, yet... The responsibility and the commitment of adulthood, like laundry and making your own doctor's appointments and cooking for yourself and realizing that you have to do the dishes after your own self-strike fear into the hearts of people raised in adolescent culture. So, instead of moving forward or backward, many choose to stay where? On the road, accepting the permanent in-betweenness of the adolescent. And it's this in-betweenness, this life that is always searching but never finding. What you're searching for doesn't so much matter. It's that you're searching. It's that you are looking. It's that life where we're always searching, never finding, always moving forward but never settling down that is appealing in our culture, the allure of it, the, the, uh, the facade of humility, that to remain agnostic about everything, about meaning, about purpose, really keeps us free from having to commit to anything. And so we have a culture on the road, right, that we're, we're marked by, our culture today is marked by, and a culture at home. And the question is, generally speaking, when I speak to Christians, they want to get back to this culture at home and kind of throw the baby with the bathwater out from this culture on the road. And so the answer is, well, then what do we do as Christians? How do we live faithfully in our age? And the answer is this. Do we throw out this culture on the road and try to do everything we can in our power, politically, socially, in all other kind of spheres of life to try to get back to this culture at home? And the answer is no, to both. We don't give ourselves to a culture on the road and we don't, throw out, we don't throw it out, but we also don't try to artificially recover this culture at home. The answer is no, we must find a third way. Rather than going on the road and just not thinking about the destination, what does it look like to actually think about a destination and our journey together? Because this is the way that God's designed us as we will see. We want to go on the road with Kohelet and experience with him the vanity of searching, the vanity of living in this permanent in-between place, the meaninglessness of it all, the frustration of it, the futility of it. Not so that we can be left in a state of meaninglessness, not so that we can be left in adolescence because adolescence, listen, adolescence is not a bad thing. We all have to pass through adolescence. The, the, the problem is when we stay stuck there, and our culture oftentimes is stuck there, but what does it look like to actually pass through into adulthood? Adolescence isn't bad in and of itself as a stage, but it becomes incredibly, incredibly dysfunctional, and we've all seen in ourselves or someone we love or someone who we used to love, but now we don't love so much, the way that this can go wrong. And so, I want to jump in to the text where Koholet breaks out into one of the most famous Poems in all of the Old Testament. Follow with me in Ecclesiastes 3. For everything, he says, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now Kohelet, he opens up this poem that will go until verse 8, and he's trying to encompass Everything. For, the, for everything there is a season. There is no stone left unturned in his mind. Now, he will have to choose a few things, but in reality, he's trying to cover the entire gamut of his experience that he has seen under the sun. Everything. Everything that happens on earth, all of our experiences, all of our emotions... He's saying that there are seasons for everything that happens. He excludes nothing. And what I need us to understand is this, is that Kohelet here is describing what happens, not prescribing what should happen. I want to be real clear here, that when we read scripture, we need to be careful that when we read it, we're not always taking it as prescriptions. He is describing here, he's taking a step, he's taking this cosmic step back and looking at the world and saying, I have surveyed everything that I could for my position of power and this is what I see. He's not saying, let's carve out a time for everything that I'm about to say. But he does stand back and he tries to take on the entirety of his experience. He realizes that the world is somewhat in this cyclical uh, it's, the world has a cyclical nature to it, a, a rhythm, a beat to it. We already saw a couple of weeks ago when he started talking about the sun going up, the sun going down, the winds going around and around on their circuits. There was just almost this unending, eternal, kind of like, it, it, it was, it was more, it's more like a Greek uh, cosmology thinking about the world that it never had a beginning or an end. It just keeps on going. And and what do we do with that? He continues in verse 2 when he says this, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. And notice, notice that these are things that happen to you, right? The things that happen to us. It bugs me out that when you sit there and you think about your life, there was, you were not in the council chamber deciding whether mom and dad were going to meet and copulate and then have you nine months later. Like you had no decision whatsoever as to whether you were going to be born or not. He's just looking back at the world and saying, listen, this is just what happens. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And back in this time where suicide was, a, was less, much less common, it was a very rare occurrence. Even death then is not something that you have control over. Like he's already, he's starting out with with this idea that, listen, there are things happening in the world that you have no control over at all. Even a plant doesn't decide when it will be planted and when it will be plucked up. They are left to forces outside of itself, much like being born and dying are left to forces outside of us. And he continues in verse three. He says this, he says, there's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. I love, that's my favorite verse in all. I'm Puerto Rican, right? Like, we dance. That's my favorite verse in all of Scripture. And again, Kohelet isn't prescribing what we should do. He's not not saying here, hey, what we need to do, we need to sort of carve out a time to kill. Like, it's killing season. Let's go out and kill. Like, as if we're hunting moose. That's not his point here. He's just standing back and saying, this is what happens. As I see the world, there seems to be an appropriate time to kill, an appropriate time to heal folks. There seems to be an appropriate time to to weep and an appropriate time to laugh, right? He's saying this is just what happens. In the fallen world, he's saying there is a place for the taking of life. He's not trying to cater to our modern sensibilities. He's looking at the world with eyes wide open and saying this is what's there. We must deal with what is there. And then he continues in verse 5, and he says this, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now, this one was a little bit weirder. What does it mean to, like, like is he going to the lake and, and, and skipping? Like, what, what is going on here? And this is what I found out. Uh, It was a very common military strategy back then to take boulders and stones and to throw those boulders and stones onto your enemy's crops so that the crops wouldn't be able to come up. Like, this is the definition. This is the ancient Near Eastern definition of pettiness, right? Like, there's a time to be petty and a time to be mature and face your enemy. Uh, But he's saying here, there's a time to be petty. Amen. Amen. And so the modern translation could just be that, a time to be petty and a time to be a grown-up. But then he continues in verse 6 where he says this, There's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep, and a time, sorry, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Verse 6 is Mary Kondo's favorite verse. It's just a time to chuck stuff out. It's one of my favorite verses as well. Like, I'm a chucker at home. And he concludes, he concludes this beautiful poem. And and this could be, we hope, at this point in reading the text, we're hoping, like, maybe this is it. Maybe in understanding the way that the world works, maybe understanding, like, having a blueprint to the way that God has created the world, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the way that we can find meaning maybe this isn't all havel after all the point is that the that God establishes periods and times and seasons and moments for a a wide variety of emotions and activities but is it is it enough like is it enough for us and he continues in verse 9 like what a this guy what a downer like he had us on some of the most, be- like some of the most beautiful, poetic. I mean, like this is like tattoo worthy. Put it on a on a poster worthy. Like it's beautiful. Time to weep and a time to dance. A time to mo- like gorgeous. And then, what gain has the worker from all of his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also. He has put eternity in man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, you have to indulge me here. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it when he says, but in the end, but in the end, does it really make a difference what anyone does? Right? Like when we read it in the ESV, it, you know, what gain has it worked from all this toil? We can we can do some like jumps with that. Like, oh, that could be positive. That could be positive. No, it's like in the end, does it even really matter? What anyone does, like, does it? That's that's the question that Kohelet puts on us over and over again in the end. When all is said and done, and we are sitting and we are lying six feet beneath the earth, or we're cremated and we're on someone's mantle somewhere at home, does it matter what we've done? And to Kohelet, and to the book of Ecclesiastes thus far, the answer is, is no. He continues uh, in verse 10 where he says, I've had a good look at what God has given us to do. Busy work mostly, like busybodies. bodies. Like, like I've been walking around really quickly with a clipboard but not really going anywhere. I look busy, right? But I'm just fooling my manager, right? Like there's, I'm doing nothing. I'm just around the job site with a broom pretending to be busy but I'm doing absolutely nothing. We're going nowhere fast like really fast. And that's what he's saying. Basically, we're basically so busy with all of our ventures, right? With all of our projects, with all of our sports, with all of our business, with all of the ways that we try to make ourselves look impressive. And what does it all amount to? Havel. And for the half glass full folks, you know, maybe it's not all nothing, right? Like we have, this, we have this sliver of hope in verse 11. This very thin, like so, you can see through it. It's so thin, but it's there. Right? We have the sliver of hope, of hope in verse 11 where it says, true, okay, fine, it's all nothing, true. But God made everything beautiful in itself and in its time. That's, that's where we like to stop. This is what goes on mugs, right? God has made everything beautiful in its Time, like yes, at least, you know, yes, we may not be going anywhere. We it it may all amount to nothing, but at least the road is nice. At least we're taking a scenic route to nowhere. But but he's left us in the dark so that we can never know what God is up to, whether he is coming or that he is going. Thanks. So great, things are beautiful. Thank you. That that's a that's a great consolation prize, but in the end. It doesn't amount to anything. And Kohelet, he's going to close us today with two thoughts. He's going to say this. He's going to have two two statements, two I perceived statements. So he's looking back and saying, okay, all said and done, these are my closing statements. He has two of them. The first one is, don't worry, be happy. The second one is, it is what it is. Don't worry, be happy. Second one, yo, it is what it is. He says this in verse 12. He says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And the context here and the language here indicates that this conclusion isn't as happy as we thought in the beginning. This is a conclusion of a man who has resigned. A man who has put his arms up in frustration, saying, Listen, there's nothing so that at least we can basically stop trying to figure it all out and just enjoy the present. Don't worry about what you can't figure out, the deep meaning of the world or your uni- or the universe or your place in it. Like like the we we just received this beautiful, beautiful shot of what is at the center of our galaxy, this black hole. I mean, it is amazing, the size of this thing. And yet we can discover all of it. But don't worry. Just enjoy your agnosticism. It doesn't matter. Just be happy. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we what? We die. So So he looks at the pattern of the world that God creates, and his first response is this. Just don't worry. Just be happy. The second one is this. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what, it ha- and God seeks what has been driven away. What God does, God does. What God has done, God has done. Nothing can be added to it. What God will do, god will do and nothing that you will ever do i hope you don't just take this snippet from a sermon right because this is not like I'm, I'm i'm just taking his like koholet's view here right this is it doesn't matter what you do nothing matters because what god does god will do and that's all that matters ultimately this is a deeply frustrating and nihilistic view of life that nothing matters and yet there's this ache there's this ache in us. There's this ache in Kohelet to not, be, like, not settle there. Even after millennia, millennia, thousands and thousands of years of us dealing and struggling, each generation, with an existential crisis like this, we still haven't settled. We still try to find a way to figure it out, we haven't learned our lesson. But this is the thing that is not by mistake. You, we need to. Un- that is not by happenstance. What we started, we started today with contrasting this culture of home versus a culture of the road. And many Christians would be tempted to throw away the culture of the life on the road, the baby with the bathwater, and try to return to this false sense of security of the home. But this ache to search is not a mistake. The ache to search, to be out on the road, to explore, is not actually new with us. It didn't start with the industrial revolution or the advent of the car or this post-war ache for pleasure or the advent right, of the automobile, these vehicles that can take us wherever we want today. This ache has been expressed in different ways through different cultures through the millennia. Through the millennia. This ache started with Adam and Eve to search out another Way because the reality is this that we were made to explore. Y- y- you have been implanted with something to search. Come back with me to verse 11 where he says this we skipped over. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, into humanity's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Without a doubt, the most famous verse in Ecclesiastes, maybe. Maybe only behind Psalm 23 and all of the Old Testament. And what does it mean? I love the way Tremper Longman in his commentary, he says this. He sums it up perfectly. He says, it is as if, listen to this. It is as if God is baiting or toying with his human creatures, giving them a desire for something that is well beyond their reach. God is somewhat uh, uh, teasing humanity by giving them a desire and then nothing to scratch it with. Like, have you ever had a mosquito bite somewhere that you just can't reach and you would sell half of your soul to just have one of those back scratchers? And the problem is that humanity, we sell our whole selves to scratch an itch that we just can't seem to get to. There's an eternal itch that we have in the pit of our beings that we try to scratch with money or with sex, or with pleasure, with pain, with relationships, with conquest, with power, with religion. But God has placed this eternal itch in humanity, but nothing to scratch it with. Have you ever just like, just been in that place? You would have given up anything. But it's out of reach. That itch to be connected to something larger than ourselves. Why do we look for black holes? Why do we try to go all the way to the edge of the universe? We need to be connected to something that is bigger than our lives. We need to know that this itch really has been placed in us by this eternal God. And we realize, we realize that it is pointless. Because what God does, God does. What he will do, he will do. And it is pointless for us to try to find out. So, With this lack of confidence that we could ever arrive, we take the consolation prize of our culture and say it's not the destination, it's the journey. We just need to enjoy ourselves. It is what it is. Don't worry. Be happy. And so we try to make our lives as comfortable as possible to fill the void that we have within us that nothing we have ever found can satisfy. So we eat and we drink and we enjoy ourselves because tomorrow, it doesn't matter. We could never attain or reach or figure out or unlock or decipher the infinite from the place of the finite. But what if? Big what if? What if the eternal has infiltrated the temporal? What if the eternal has infiltrated and allowed us, he decides to actually hand us the blueprints of the universe? And we can't figure it out, but what if? What if this eternal being enters into temporality with us to show us? What if God himself decides to reveal what has been kept hidden from Kohelet? What if the meaning of life is not going to be found as we pursue wisdom? The meaning of life is not going to be found as we eat and drink and be merry or go on a three-month journey through Europe or take a kantiki tour to find ourselves. The hope of knowing... The deep secrets of life, of opening up the hood of the universe and seeing what's underneath will not be found in sex and travel. The meaning of life, we end up discovering, is actually not found in our searching. Searching, in fact, is vain because our contemporary world will tell you this, amass possessions, get stuff as much as you possibly can. Get money. Have as many sexual encounters as you possibly can. Own that home and make sure that when you do own that home, you take a flick and you post it on Facebook to make all your other friends who can't afford a deposit a little bit jealous because you've made it. Have those kids. Get that spouse. Get that corner office. Get that boat in the driveway that you rarely take out anyway because you need to work so much to pay it off. Pursue personal growth. Become religious. And if you do these things, then you will unlock your happiness and the meaning to life. You will finally be content. But there's one problem, eternity. There has been something called eternity that's been placed in you that all of those things cannot satisfy. We can conquer the world like Alexander the Great. We can sell records like Kanye. We can own real estate like Trump. We can be crazy successful like Oprah, and yet you will be left with an itch that nothing can scratch. Let me tell you now what the key to that itch is. It's a, it's, it blew me away. It's friendship. Friendship. This is what Jesus says. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have revealed to you. I have made it known. Friendship, friendship with Jesus is the key to that eternal itch. Friendship. Like God, listen, I know how my week has been. I know that I stand here as a man undeserving of the friendship of Jesus. And yet he calls me friend, friend. He calls me friend. There's this old song. It's probably cheesy to us now, right? But there's this old song. Came, I mean, old. It's like 20 years old. When, when I became a Christian. It says this. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I, Joel, you need to like dust this off and, and and do it for, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. Who am I that you are mindful of me, that you hear me when I call? Is it true that you are thinking of me, how you love me? It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And let me tell you, it is amazing. It's amazing that the creator that stands behind it all, all of it, and I'm not talking about all of it like, like the Wizard of Oz, there's a curtain. No, like, behind the whole structure of reality. He stands behind it and outside of it, and he could have come, and he calls me friend. The creator that is responsible and is utterly sovereign for all of these seasons, for a time for this and a time for that, calls you friend. Not only does he reveal himself as sovereign and as king, and as God and ruler and judge and sustainer and creator and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-magnificent, high and lifted up his, the train of his robe, fills the temple. He is transcendent. But when he decides to infiltrate humanity, when he decides to infiltrate temporality, he calls me friend. And he gives us the opportunity to call him friend. And he reveals to us the deep meaning of life. The God who holds every ounce of water in the universe in the hollow of his hand. The God who looks at the whole expanse of the world and says, this is how he measures it. Like if God had a hand, like he would measure the world like this. All right, well, you're all still awake, so I'm, we, don't get, we don't get this. His bigness. The God who has no rivals, the God with no competition, the God who can do whatever he wants. We know some people, and we may be some people ourselves, that if we had a little bit of power, we would be dangerous. Right? And yet, all this power, what does he decide to do with all of this immense power? power. I'm your friend. That is amazing. And while Kohelet can say that no one can ever know what God is up to, we can say that because of what God has done in Christ, what he has accomplished in his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, we know, we can know it is available to us This for us now provides a meaning that not even death can take from you. What? Like, death is a comma in your life. It is not a period. And there's nothing that can take away Jesus' friendship from you. God creates in us this longing that only friendship, friendship with God can actually cure. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a, uh, such a thing as Sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Rather, probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And the real thing is friendship with God. This is what is meant when Kohelet writes that he has placed eternity in our hearts. And yet, only in Jesus do we find the key, the logos, the telos, the the, the clue to all of the universe, the answer. And what what happens when he shows up? What what actually happens when life, like uh, life, capital L, life, When capital L, love shows up, what happens? He threatens our way of life. He threatens our idols. He threatens the ways in which we have over and over again tried to scratch our itch. He threatens the broken ways that we've gone about scratching our eternal itch with temporal things. And so what do we do? We kill him. And because God is who God is, because God's folly is greater than our wisdom, it's in that death, that new life. Is born a new world a new reality that was brought about not by our searching but by his searching for you by him going out and searching for you our searching may be in vain but his isn't and that's why i love the fact that what we want to do here is to do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home god is searching and all we want to do like like we're not first on the scene god is and we're just, we're, we're, we're asking, like, like, Dad, hey, can you hand me a flashlight? Can I search with you? Can, can we go out together and do this together? Our life is not found in our endless searching. It's found in being searched for and found by God in Christ. And this is my invitation to you today. I'm not sure where we all are, but if you are not a follower of Jesus, my invitation is to pause, pause long enough, pause long enough to, to, to feel that existential ache in the pit of your stomach. Pause for long enough to allow the disappointment that that feels like to settle. Pause long enough for you to feel that disappointment in the things or the people that you've placed your hope in. Pause long enough to allow the ache to be what it is, an echo of something that is truer, something that is deeper, something that is more beautiful. Your desire to search is not bad. It is a gift. And I pray that more than anything that today you would find the end of that. And if you are an apprentice of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, my invitation is actually the same, that you would pause for just long enough to realize that maybe the ways that we have tried to scratch that existential itch is not very different from our neighbors who are not following Jesus. Maybe we place a little bit of religious garb on it. Maybe we, we bless it with some anointing oil, right? But, but what, if, what if we just pause long enough to realize that, that you would be free to repent and come home. Repentance is not a nasty word. Repentance is God's invitation to say come and experience your true humanity. That you would continue to do that. That the journey, the searching in the end, it matters, of course. While we were all on this journey, none of us, none of us has obtained the final prize. We can rest. We can rest because we have been found. I'm going to invite the band up now and my prayer My prayer is that we would be able to rest, that we would with Augustine remember this, that our hearts are restless, they are anxious until we are found by God in Christ. May this be our reality, Anchor Church. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have allowed us such a time and a place, Lord. It is not a mistake that we are here today not only here today present at 3 p.m on a sunday but that we are living in these times you have given us a job to do you have given us a vocation you have given us a mission to do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home and i pray lord that you would use this church powerfully to do something that we cannot take credit for do something that is going to stretch us do something that is going to Bring us to our knees. Do something that is going to call out faith. We need you more than anything, Jesus. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the church said, Amen.